But you know what this world needs? More chaos. More uncertainty. More wondering what is going on. Said nobody. Ever. That's not just an our time thing. At least nobody who has been in their right mind. Maybe you have, and I can tell from a little bit of your reaction, maybe you've experienced a bit of that tension over these last, let's say, year. Even though so much of the chaos of this last year, year and a half, it doesn't, you know, we're not in the, the flux of recommendations and requirements and acronyms changing every five minutes and, you know, me having to preface, preface everything I say as a pastor as, as of this instant, this is what's going on. But we, you know, we as a species are still kind of waiting to see how the dust settles from a lot of the last 18 months. And maybe it's a human being thing, but we kind of have this bent toward stability, towards constant, towards being able to at least have a part of our lives that's like, okay, I have an idea what this is going to be like. It's one of the reasons, just as an example, that the worship order isn't changing drastically every week. Said so if you come in here and you've been here two or three times, you can know, okay, I have some kind of idea what this is going to look like. But there's no, certainly no fault in that idea of wanting a constant. God designed us that way. I mean, God designed us as warm-blooded creatures, which, you know, you take a warm-blooded creature and you throw their temperature off one or two degrees off of 98.6 and something's wrong. You're going to end up stealing a bed from Jerry. Or Jerry's going to be at your bed, one or the other. It may be a simplistic example, I get it, but the fact proves itself again and again and again in life that the one constant in life is change. This isn't to be a knock on change, because sometimes change can be a good thing. I was scrolling through Facebook the other day, and one of the memories popped up from five years ago of Leah's homecoming day. And many of you guys were around for the um, ever change of her first two months of, of life. And as much as I loved her, as, a, as much as one can love a baby that's in an ocelot, I'm really glad she's not a 10-pound infant anymore. But now, she is a 50-pound bounce off the wall with energy, energizer rabbit, school-ager, which is a frightening label to have to put on a child when, well, when she's the finale. But growth, moving from a 10-pound infant who can't yet even uh, understand the concept of feeding herself to being a school-ager and learning and growing requires change. <laughs> One mentor of mine has said consistently as we are talking about growing and developing and, and learning that sometimes, oftentimes, growth happens through discomfort. As you think about it, that, you can kind of see how that's 
Right, to learn something new, for instance, you have to recognize that you don't know it, and that can be uncomfortable, and you're learning new things, and maybe you don't quite get it the first time or the second time, and, and growth and development, maturity, sometimes has some discomfort to it. And maybe you've dreamed over these last few weeks as we have talked about kind of a, a way of engaging culture as a whole, that we wish there are things about the world that would change. Let the world be in discomfort a little bit and grow a little bit. And often our call to, to kind of bring this around, because you know if you point one finger out, three fingers do point back at us. Sometimes for us to our call to grow or our, our call to mature requires change, requires growth. But here's the thing. Nothing happens in a vacuum. Certainly not when it comes to change. It's sort of the, um, I think they call it the butterfly effect, where if you change one thing over here, it can have an effect on the other side of the world. That things don't just happen in isolation and change can bring us either closer to God or it can pull us further away. As we'll see in the acknowledgement that we're going to look at in a bit, you know, because given our, our bent towards constant, our bent towards homeostasis, since I was using the biology terminology, let's take comfort in this acknowledgement that the philosopher or the teacher or Solomon gives us. In Ecclesiastes 3. Perhaps you've heard this before. Try and hear it as though it were for the first time. For everything there is a season. And a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. I guess I should be kind of glad that I sit down when I record these things because I, had, I get just sort of the, the sway of the rhythm of that passage going on. Because it is a very rhythmic discourse, and maybe there's something to the poetic form of that in that we can take comfort in that there is a, a rhythm, a pattern, a, a seasons that complement each other to how life works. And being near farmland, we, can, we get some of these things, particularly the farmland. Well, we get there's a time to plant, and there's a time to, to reap or to harvest. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. We don't need a whole lot of life experience to understand. There is just certain seasons for that, seasons for one, seasons for the other. But to look at the, the poem as a whole, I'm, I'm going to 
classified as that is that's sort of the literary form of it. Starting off with that idea of there's a time to be born and a time to die. And having seven, st- or seven verses within it kind of gives us the sense, particularly how the Old Testament is written, that sense of totality, of giving us the whole picture, looking at life from 30,000 feet, if you will. Anytime you hear that idea of seven Particularly in the Old Testament, that's usually speaking of completion, get of totality, another word for it. So if we're capturing the whole human experience here, if this is the full package, it makes sense to take comfort again in that rhythm, in that back and forthness that, that Solomon puts out. When we mourn, we get that there's a, a that's a part of life, and there's a place in life for it. When we lose, we're not totally thrown off because, okay, it, that happens. And for each of the different things that, that Solomon covers, they're not out of place in the big picture of life. But here's the rub with Solomon's words, or with these ideas, is these aren't things, we don't do these things, but rather they happen to us. And that can get a little discomforting. Especially when I phrase it this way, to say more accurately, it's a list of things that God sends to us. Now I get it, that can can maybe get us to squirm a little bit more because we want to take comfort in a God who is going to get us through these kinds of things. How, and the idea that if these things are happening to us and when we really think about it, we sort of have to acknowledge that, as I'll get to in a little bit. But we realize that us being the masters of our fate, living out the Invictus poem, goes up in meaningless smoke, as Solomon would say earlier on in this text. It's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. Just grasping at the wind. So it begs the question, if God is the one who sends all of this stuff, the totality of all these ideas to us. How do, we honor, how do I honor a God who writes kill and weep and mourn into our lives? It's an honest question. Whatever degree of maturity or growth we have had in our lives. Because some of this list is the kind of stuff we wouldn't wish on our worst enemy. And even worse, while they are all a part of life, there is so much of this that we don't choose the time that's convenient to live some of this stuff out, do we? We don't get to choose, we certainly don't get to choose the time we're born, just to start off the list, but going through a bit of life, we don't get to choose when it's convenient to mourn or to weep. We don't get to choose when... um, when is the time to laugh or, to, or to, to dance or to cry? Some of those things, we, if I had the choice, it'd be all right, let's laugh until we cry. We could use some of that, but we don't get to pick and choose. And, and God doesn't consult us on that sort of stuff. And oftentimes they happen with very little prep. You know, um, as Linda was saying, when it came to, to Jerry going to, 
what ultimately would be heart surgery. It's like, there wasn't a whole lot of God checking your schedule. Probably wasn't a whole lot of, hey, is this a good weekend to you know, need double bypass? It's just like, bang, here it is. Deal with it. Maybe it happens that we, all the prep we get is we hear the phone go off. Or we see the accident. Or we hear the heart monitor go from bleep, bleep to beep. Not to minimize the pain of those kinds of a time fours and what that brings. But perhaps, let, let's look at this just from the other, another perspective, just to give some, hopefully some comfort to it. You ever met somebody who's never been stretched, never been hurt, never had to mourn, never had to weep or cry? You might call it, dare I term it this way, you might call it the trust fund life. Everything is just lollipops and gumdrops. If somebody goes through life consistently protected, consistently in a bubble like that, how do they turn out? Usually, if I can paint with a broad brush, it might be a bit self-centered, a bit spoiled rotten, a bit unfun to be around. Um, that's one of the reasons that you know, I think of Sarah, who loves to spend more time with her feet over, above her head than on the ground. And she loves being up in, in this one tree in the corner of our, our property. And sometimes I'll be there with her and I'll kind of spot her. And I'm like thinking to myself, all right, I won't let you crack your head open. Because I'm not, you know, a call child protective services kind of dad. But if you go down, I might let you skin your knee. I, you know, looking at Andrew in, in this past spring, for instance, he wanted the chance to get, to get to pitch in one of his baseball games. And it's a, for a 10-year-old who, who loves playing baseball, it's a noble thing to want to go after. And I've got this goal, and I want to work hard to be able to do this. And if he didn't get the call... And the cool thing was he did. I might have let him sit in that disappointment a little bit. To be like, you know, I wanted to do this and I didn't get the chance and I'm bummed about it. And just kind of walk alongside him and say, you know what? Yeah, that stinks. But I'm not going to dive in to, to save you from that pain or that frustration. Let me expand this idea a little bit and reread a part of what Isaiah writes from that passage that I read earlier. Remember this and consider. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my purpose shall stand, and I will fulfill my intention. I know that seems to go in a lot, of, a lot of different directions, but when I was doing my undergrad, 
I had a philosophy professor. Believe it or not, I actually took a philosophy class. It was a philosophy of religion class. There were a couple of, of friends from our ministry in it together, and so we're kind of like, all right, we'll, we'll take on this class together. And the professor made a posit that I had to wrestle with a little bit. He said, I believe Jesus Christ is a time traveler. And I looked at him from my seat, maybe 20 feet away, and looked at his wild haircut and think, all right, this guy's a little off his rocker here. But just because I'm in college and we're supposed to, I'll, I'll wrestle with this idea a little bit. And eventually I started to sort of grasp what he was getting at. Because we often see, as human beings, life as a movie. As something that happens one frame at a time. And that happens. And that happens. And we can look at the things that are happening, the scenes that are going on, and go, what in the world? How does this make sense? How does this work out to anything? I don't get it. God, if this is part of your design, part of your, um, your makeup, what, what's going on? It seems random, but God, rather, sees life as a movie. Sees all the scenes at once as though they were happening at the same time. Even the parts that we haven't lived through yet, that we haven't acknowledged yet, experienced yet. And it can be tricky for us, yes, and God acknowledges that. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says, He has made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, He has put a sense of past and future into their minds, into our minds, you could say. Yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So here's where we can take a little bit of comfort. Even though we don't know what the whole movie is going to look like, how it's going to end, is that the God who does have a sense of the past and the future and can see them really at the same time, he doesn't make mistakes. As David says, and this is the reason it's kind of on my head to, to include this in prayer, David says in Psalm 139, acknowledging God's work, for it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well, says in Psalm 139. One of my personal favorites. Here's the thing. The angel Gabriel didn't distract God while he was writing your DNA. God didn't look at the creation of Andrew and go, wait, how did Brian escape in 1977? He wasn't, a, he wasn't supposed to get revealed until 1986. God wasn't surprised or shocked. 
He's the one who sits on top of all that has been and all that ever will be. I like how one pastor uh, out of Texas, Matt Chandler, says, he says, I'm going to make sure I get this right. It's like God is saying, I got this. You can let go. Enjoy the fact that everything that is happening to you, all of those a time fours and a time fours and a time fours that happened to you, whether you like them or not, all of them have gone through my hands. Enjoy the fact that even what is tearful and hard is a part of my love for you. So this week, if you happen to face change that got thrown on you, the curveball that seems to come out of nowhere, and while I put the spotlight on some of the more negative ones, understand this, I have never been a, uh, a prophet or a fortune teller or foreseer or anything like that, so take peace in that. Whenever you experience one of those things that hap- seems to happen to you, hang on to these words, to this prayer to keep you close. God, I hang on to you. Just five words, right? Yeah. That any time you need it, you can bring them back up. And whatever happens around us, know that he will stay the same. The God who has the past and the future figured out. The God who does not make a mistake. Who does not get surprised or go off duty. And let that truth allow you, free you up to experience the abundant life he came to give. Let's pray together. Lord, may our 168 hours of the week be a worship to you. An acknowledgement of all the awesomeness that you are. And allow us to worship you by trusting you with that time. To hang on to you and to let changes and let curveballs and let those things that happen to us draw us closer to you rather than pull us away. Gift us with the, with the ability and the, the sense to do that, we pray. Amen.